0: This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Well, good morning. It's an important day for Sunset. Mike's ordination and our elders have decided they want to honor those who have been a part of Uh, The transition served so faithfully uh, during this time, so we hope that you'll stay for that. So just a great day. It's also the second week of our series in the book of Judges. We began the series last week, and if you were not here, you missed us playing a piece of holding out for a hero in church, yes, you know that song if you were, you know, a little older than, say, 12 or 15 in the 80s, or you've watched Shrek 2. And, and really, the lyrics of this song actually speak to the reality of the book of Judges. They really do. Uh, it says, Where have all the good men gone, and where are all the gods, and where is the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm looking out for a hero till the end of the night. And he's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. And he's got to be sure and it's got to be soon and he's got to be larger than life. And in the book of Judges, we're going to meet a number of heroes. God called them Judges that he raised up to rescue his people. Um, And I told you last week that Judges is in many ways a very disturbing and often bloody and violent book. If Judges were a movie... It would get an R rating for sure. So it helps that we're simply going to read or tell the story to you, kind of keep it in the black and white pages of Scripture. But I also want you to understand that for the people alive at that time, this was a very difficult season of Israel's history. Those who still wanted to follow Yahweh became very discouraged as they watched what was happening around them. Now, at the beginning and the end of the book of Joshua, which is kind of uh, the book that precedes Judges before we get to 1 and 2 Samuel and then the Kings, God gives very specific directions to Joshua and the people. He tells them that he's going to give them the land. Moses has led them through the wilderness uh, for 40 years, and now finally they're going to come into the land, and Joshua is going to lead them there. And God says that he's going to give them the lamb, but they have to humbly depend upon God in order to take it and to inhabit it. They have to be careful, as he says in Joshua 1, to obey all the law and to meditate on it, to live in it. Um, They have to also recognize that they cannot expect success if they don't accompany that with, if they don't accompany their dependence upon God with obedience, they have to meditate on His word and trust in His promises. Now, when God, when the people came into the land, God told them not to enter into covenants with the other pe- nations or peoples. And what He meant by that was don't serve their gods. Because He said, don't enter into a covenant relationship with their gods. Because you're already in a covenant relationship with me A covenant of my making and my faithfulness to you I also want you to understand that the purpose of driving out Not all of the people from the land of Canaan But those who particularly um, often practiced child sacrifice Or whose uh, religions were bloody or violent God said, I want you to drive them out But this was not vengeful And it wasn't even economic. It was spiritual. They were to be removed so that Israel would not fall under their religious influence. They were to build a home country in which they served God and lived out the reality of who God was, which often was a God of love and justice. In a way, most of the surrounding nations, if not all of them, did not live. They were to live in such a way that the other nations would say, I want to be part of that. That is far better than the way we live. Because remember, when God made his covenant with Abraham to bless Abraham and the nation that would come from Abraham, he also said, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. So God wanted the people's lives to reflect who God was. Now, chapter one records their initial movement into the land and their first uh, few battles, the first few couple driving out. Tim Keller says it actually kind of reads like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It's, it's, it's good, but it's kind of their spin on why they aren't quite as successful as we would assume they would be uh, in light of God's promise to them. So it leaves us feeling a bit of sympathy for them, like, oh, it's too bad. But in chapter two, we're going to find out what God's assessment is of their lack of complete victory is. And so open your Bibles, if you would, to Judges chapter 2. Uh, grab your phone if that's how you access God's word or get a Bible from in front of you because we're going to read a couple chapters or some pretty long sections of a couple chapters here in uh, the book of Judges. And so I want you to be able to follow along. It'll be, um, it'll be helpful. Chapter 2 says, And the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal... Tobonkin, and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I gave your ancestors. I said, I shall, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down all their altars. Let me pause there for a moment because you're thinking, what? An angel takes a road trip? And this opens this chapter. What's this all about? Well, let me be very honest and say you have no idea what this is about unless you've read the book of Joshua and connected what's going on here with Joshua 5 where God said he made a covenant with his people uh, and he says to them, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And this is in Gilgal that God does this in Joshua 5. I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So this is the place, Gilgal, where God has said... I'm going to enter into a relationship with you, not one that's based on how good you've done or how obedient you've been, but based solely on my grace, motivated not by anything that they had done, but by God's loving kindness. Uh, the Hebrew word for that kind of loving kindness is hesed faithful, faithful love. So when the angel, so we may not attach any significance to where this angel goes, but the people of Israel did. They understood completely that this was a reenactment of that moment earlier in their history. And this is the angel is saying to them, your God is a rescuing, promise-keeping, faithful God. Now remember last week when I told you there's at least three reasons why you might wanna study this book despite the fact that it is a bit disturbing? I said, first of all, if you need to know that God is not just a second chance God, that God is a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and a sixth chance and a seventh chance God, if you need to know that, then Judges might be a book for you. If you feel like this world is a dark place, another school shooting, ten people murdered, Crime, sexual assault, misuse of power, uh, struggles worldwide. When you feel like days are dark and you think, God, where are you in all of this? Then if you feel that way, Judges may be a book for you. And if you've ever looked up to, trusted, and followed a leader that you believed was following God only to find out... That somehow they had moved away from following God, perhaps even using their spiritual influence and power for selfish gain, for notoriety, or other selfish endeavors, then Judges is a book for you. And the beginning of chapter 2 is God giving Israel a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth chance. To follow him and to choose him over worship of anything less than God. But again and again, as we're going to see in this chapter, they will choose something less than God. The God who gives all good things will be turned away from because they believe that somehow, perhaps, what these other nations are offering, what their gods, little g, are offering, might be better. So let's keep reading here. The end of verse two, God says, after he says, I made this covenant with you, you shall break down all their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? He says, why have you done this? Um, And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all of the Israelites, the people wept aloud. And they called the place Bokum because they, and there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And so what happens here is that they repent. The people hear it. They recognize that God had told them he would rescue them. And so they come back and they repent. But often human repentance is short-lived. We're terrible at remembering that repentance is to lead to dependence. So what happens is we repent, but then life gets better. And we go back to no longer depending on God. And that's exactly what the people do. And this next section, starting with verse 6, is so important because it is the cycle that we are going to see repeated over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Verse six After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, and they went to take and they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. And the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua, and the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age a hundred and ten. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. People, this is why we tell the story of our faith. This is why we talk about what God has done. We do this because we hand it down to the next generation. So important for us to teach people not to forget and to teach them how to tell their own story. Verse 11. Then Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, and you know, this is hard for us. We don't like to think of God as an angry God, do we? God is angry, but he is not vengeful. You have to understand, this is not like human anger. The closest we come to this is a parent whose heart is incensed as they watch their child go through something horribly dark and difficult and needless. And the parent's heart becomes angry, not so much at the child, though that's part of it, at their choices, but at what is happening to them. That's the closest we come, and even then we're imperfect. But God experiences the whole range of human emotions, and we see that here as he becomes angry. And in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He said, Is this what you want? All right, you can have it. You can have it. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. God had prophesied. He'd said, look, here's what's going to happen. Don't do it. Make a different choice. But they did not. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges, or heroes, who saved them out of the hands of of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their human heroes, their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from their ways, uh, the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was the, with the judge and saved them from the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. God cares about your pain even when you inflict it on yourself. God cares about that. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is the cycle that we're going to see play out again and again. So last week we met the third judge of Israel, Deborah. And uh, we started there because it was Mother's Day. Seemed appropriate. Now we're going to back up and look at the first two judges that God raises up. And so we're going to go to chapter 3, verse 7. We'll see the beginning of this cycle. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishamath, king of uh, Aram, Nerim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, literally a hero. Atheniel, uh, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And the spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. And the Lord gave Kushan Rashatham, uh, king of Aram, into the hands of Oth- Othaniel, who overpowered him so that the land had peace for 40 years until Othanel, son of Kenaz, died. So this man is an actual nephew of Caleb, uh, the one of the two spies who obeyed God, who had faith in God, who believed that God would give them the land. So he served with Joshua. And in chapter 1, Uh, There's a story told where they're going in to take the land. And Caleb is is working in obedience to God's uh, direction to come in and do that. And he says, I will give my daughter, Aksa, uh, as a wife to anyone who will join me in this battle. And Othinel does that. He joins Caleb in the battle. He marries her daughter, and he, uh, and then the daughter in chapter one goes to um, uh, her father Caleb and says, "Give us this plot of land. Give us this piece of land with this spring on it." And at first, you read it and think, "Was she just a pushy daughter who wants her father to give them land?" No. Actually, what it's signifying is that these two people. We're living in obedience to what God had said because he had said go in and inhabit the land and build houses and plant vineyards and plant gardens and flourish in the land and that's what they were doing. So that's the first judge. He's, he, he's risen up, he's a, he's a military leader who with courage and bravery goes out and does what the Lord has asked him to do. So now let's tell the story of the second judge. It's a little bit more, it's a little different. Um, This is Ehud. And Ehud uh, is an interesting character. And the story is interesting. So I'll just read it because that's going to be a lot easier than telling it. Okay. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now we're going to see this phrase over and over again. Each time they do, they're sold into God gives them over to the ones that they have become like. And uh, and then he raises up a deliverer. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, King of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. And the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for eighteen years. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left handed man. The son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now, let me pause here for a moment because you're going to think, what? Who cares whether he was left-handed or not? Okay, did you know that only 10% of people in the United States are left-handed? Yeah, a couple lefties out there. Okay. And the, world, the reality is we live in a right-handed world, Correct. I mean, almost everything that's created, all the different things, some of you are really shaking your head. You know this world is not made for left-handed people. But really, if you're a left-handed person today, you're fortunate. Because even though the world is still a bit right-handed, the reality is we're a lot more tolerant. Uh, Did you know for many, many years, if a child was born and started to use their left hand as their dominant hand, parents would literally scold, correct, you know, and, and punish them for using their left hand to move them to right hand. Well, in the ancient world, a left-handed person was shamed. You were, you were thought of as being something almost less than human if you used your left hand. So my guess is that many people in an ancient world taught themselves to use their right hand. Wouldn't you think? Somehow, Ehud makes it all the way to adulthood and still is using his left hand. And despite that, God is going to use him, and he's not the leader. You would not pick a left-handed person to lead your army. That just would not work for the people at all, but that's what is about to happen. Um, so verse uh, let's see, verse 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubic long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. And then he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So Israel decides to send, this is kind of all a plot, we're not told the military strategy behind it, but they decide to send tribute to this king uh, with an attempt, perhaps, to take him out. Perhaps, we assume it's Ehud who actually came up with this idea. Um, So he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very obese man. After Ehu had presented the tribute, he sent sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. Now, most leaders, if someone has some information that might help them in their leadership uh, and to continue to be in power, want to know that information, and Eglon was like those And uh, the king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh. Now, by the way, before he could spend time with this despotic leader, someone probably performed a security check. And they didn't have, you know, those metal detectors in that day, so they would have checked. But their assumption would have been that he was right-handed. If he was hiding anything, it would be where his right hand could get it easily, and they would have overlooked the fact that he was left-handed and his access to this was different. So he reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade... And his bowels discharged, which, by the way, is a very common thing for anyone that is injured badly or whatever. That that happens. Okay. Then Ehud went out on the porch, and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So he leaves him in the room. After he'd gone, Ehud's servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Y'all know what that means? Okay. Why would they think that? <laughs> yeah, that would be why. In other words, it was obvious to them what the what this warlord was doing. And so they think, well, we need to leave him, you know, to his privacy. While they waited, Ehud... Uh, Oh, they waited to the point of embarrassment. Can't possibly be taking him this long. And when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and there they saw their lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away, and he passed by the stone images and escaped, and when he arrived... He blew a a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took position of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, and they allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites. All vigorous and strong, not one escaped. And that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Second or uh, second judge of, uh, of Israel in that time. Now if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, so what's the deal here? These are interesting stories, but what gives? What is this really all about? Let me quickly give you five things that are the foundational truths for the rest of our journey through the book of Judges. Why is this stuff important? Five things really quickly here. Number one, God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it, seek it, or even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. Who are those people? people like you people like me this ought to deeply encourage us this is a God who says I will continue to offer my grace and my love to people number two there is always a tension around grace this tension is between God's unconditional love and his deep desire for obedience this is what is happening in Judges 2. Remember I read that part where it says, And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. And then God says, Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? In a sense, what God is saying to his people is, You have put me in an impossible situation. On the one hand, I have, I've sworn that I will not bless disobedient people. And on the other hand, I love you. I am committed to you. I have promised to be faithful to you. How do I solve this dilemma, God says? What am I to do with you? Of course, we know that God solves it temporarily with that first point, that he relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it. But because God is holy and just and cannot live alongside or bless evil and yet he's loving and faithful and can't tolerate the thought of not loving and blessing the people that he has chosen the result is he has to have a plan to resolve this tension and he does and it might have felt a long time in coming but the plan is the cross because it's only in the cross that this tension is broken on the cross, our sin was given. We call it, the theological word is imputed. Our sin was imputed, put on Jesus, so that his righteousness could be given to us. We exchanged our sin for his righteousness so that we might be made the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. On the cross, God pours out all that anger, That we see in Judges. All that anger that would be directed towards us as well. Because of our own sin and unfaithfulness. And he puts it all on Christ. And Jesus satisfies both the justice, the need for justice. The fact that sin had to be punished. And our loving faithfulness and God's loving faithfulness. Because now God is able to accept and forgive us. And this is the only way that this tension between God's desire for obedience and his unconditional love can be resolved. Which means, by the way, that when we still struggle, and we do, when we begin to see the signs of disobedience in our own life, what God invites us to do today is lean into the cross. Recognize That this has been taken care of. And then what God's heart desires is that out of gratitude and love for the freedom that he gives us in Christ and in the cross, he says, now out of gratitude and delight at what I've done for you, will you then choose obedience? This is how the tension is resolved. Number three. Humans constantly need spiritual renewal in our lives here on earth and ways to make it a reality Constantly need this. This is an entire sermon series in itself. We're not going to have time to dig into this today But God says I want you to know me and to do that. I have to become a a part of every part of your life I want to be part of your work world and your career I want to be part of your dating life. I want to be part of your singleness. I want to be part of your marriage. I want to be part of your family. I want to be part of your recreation. I want to be part of your retirement. I want to be a part of every part of your life. This is what I long for. And to do that, you have to remember me. And what we tend to do is go to church and then kind of forget till the next Sunday. God says, it doesn't work like that. You need ways. We've kind of rediscovered a lot of older spiritual disciplines in the last 50 years in the church, particularly the evangelical church. I'm grateful for them. We don't have time to talk about them this morning. But when they're used to pursue a relationship with God, they can be very, very helpful. So we constantly need spiritual renewal. We need, number four, and have a true Savior. And his name is Jesus He's the one to whom all other human saviors point, both through their flaws and their strengths. God says, I want you to recognize that when you follow a human leader, that's not the person you give all your allegiance to. They're not your savior, they're an under shepherd. And all human leaders hopefully typify some part, both in their flaws and in their strengths. Who Jesus, that we need a savior, that we need Jesus. Deborah led with courage and wisdom and character and collaboration. She may have been perhaps the best example of the way Christ came and lived and offered himself as a savior. She joined with the people. Afanil was a faithful warrior who carried out what God commanded him in obedience, just as Jesus was a faithful warrior against sin, And guilt and evil and injustice in our world. Ehud was a very unexpected leader, written off, I'm sure, by many, but used powerfully by God to deliver his people. And Jesus, too, was an unexpected leader, born humbly in Bethlehem and in poverty, not as a king, never fit the expected norms for leadership in his day, as we learned in the book of Matthew, completely different, an unexpected savior. And then last, this is so important, God is in charge no matter what it looks like. That's one we really need to take to heart. Despite the unfaithfulness of God's people that led to their being dominated and oppressed by the Canaanite rulers, God never lost control of what he was doing to rescue his people. And God has not lost control today. So let me ask you this. What in your life right now makes you feel like perhaps God is not in control? Disease? Unrealized dreams? Great big disappointments in the way life has turned out? Broken relationships? daily burdens that feel absolutely overwhelming, addictions that seem to win every time, deep wounds that refuse or seemingly refuse to be healed despite your hardest efforts, I want you to know that I honor your pain and your struggle, and so does God. But I also want you to know He has not lost control. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as we close our service today and we recognize that you are in control even when it doesn't look like it. And that you pursue us with grace and love even rescuing us from situations we get ourselves into. We are so grateful that you've given us a Savior. And Father, as we move from this service to a time of celebrating. Humans, some are who who are met we may consider human heroes, people who serve quietly behind the scenes unknown, people who serve up here on this platform. Father, we do so knowing that you are the only Savior we need. And all human heroes or saviors you send, all Only point us to Jesus, the one we're truly dependent on. In Jesus' name, amen.